The uh, scripture for today is John 12, 36b through 43. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. For the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Let me pray. Our Father, I'm so grateful that though we fail, you never fail. And I trust you, Lord. I trust that in our weakness, you will show yourself strong. And I pray that today, Father, that without the aid of of visual things, that you would help us to pay attention and to track with what you're saying in this portion of your word, because what you're saying is serious, and what you're saying is in some ways difficult to follow. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us, and I pray that you would give insight. I pray that you would convict our hearts, and I pray that you would encourage our hearts. And I thank you, Father, by faith for what you will do in Jesus' mighty and merciful name. Amen. While Jesus was standing in the midst of the city limits of Jerusalem, and probably while he was close to the temple complex, he lifted up his voice and he said loud so that lots of people could hear him. And he said, now has the hour come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You can see that in chapter 12, verse 23. By this, Jesus meant that the time had come for him to be arrested, to be tried, to be convicted, to be tortured, to be crucified, to be buried in the ground, to be raised again from the dead, to be ascended to the right hand of the Father, and to be enthroned as the eternal King and High Priest of heaven and earth. It is no wonder then, since Jesus knew that this time had come, that his words in verses 24 through 36 raised up again the ire of his enemies against him so that they were all the more determined in that moment to put an end to his life and to put an end to his ministry. Now, I get that, not from anything John reports at this part of chapter 12, but about the Pharisees anyways, about the leaders, but about what he reports about Jesus at the end of verse 36, if you'll look there. It says there that Jesus departed and hid himself from these people. Now, if you will, just for a second, turn back to chapter 8, and I want you to just look with me at verses 58 and 59. After having a, a prolonged discussion with the religious leaders of the day, Jesus lifted his voice again and said to them in verse 58, before Abraham was, I am, which every Jew knew was a way of Jesus claiming to be God. And so look in verse 59 to see what he did, what they did. They, the religious leaders of the day, picked up stones to throw at him. They were ready to kill him on the spot, right there, probably just outside the temple complex. But Jesus hid himself 
and went out of the temple. In other words, he evaded their grasp and he escaped from their deadly intentions, at least for that moment. So when we come to chapter 12, verse 36, and we see almost identical language being used that Jesus departed and he hid himself away from them, it is certain that his words in verse 30, 24 to 36 raised the ire of the Jews so that they were prepared to seize him right there in the moment and put him to death. Now, Jesus was prepared to be the Passover lamb. He knew what his destiny was. But I want to tell you that he was absolutely submitted to the perfect timing of his father. He would not hand himself over to his opponents one minute earlier than the father wanted him to do that. And so it was not quite time for him to die yet. Oh, the hour was close. He said, in fact, the hour is here. But the precise minute had not yet come. And so Jesus, in faithfulness to his father, hid himself away from the authorities that they might not kill him quite yet. Now, having spent 11 months with you in John chapter 1 to John chapter 12, you and I both know that this dynamic between Jesus and the Jewish leaders is nothing new, is it? It was sort of, I was going to say prophesied, that's not exactly the right word, but it was put on the table at least in chapter 1, verse 14, when John said that Jesus came to his own people and his own people did not receive him, they did not accept him. But from chapter 2 to this point, we have seen that every time Jesus poured out his lavish grace upon sinful and hurting people, for some reason, the leadership of Israel became angry with him and became jealous of him and even plotted to kill him, the very God of life. And now that this tension between the Jewish leaders and Jesus has come to its crescendo, there is this question that's been hanging over the Gospel of John for the whole time that it is just begging to be answered. And that question is simply, why? Why in the world are the Jews acting like this toward Jesus? Why? Are the people who have longed for so long for their Redeemer to come opposed to their Redeemer? So opposed that they're literally in this moment plotting to kill him. Why is this happening? What sense does this make? John answers this question in verse 37 to 43. But I want to warn you that we're going to have to think carefully about this, beloved. If we're not careful... We're going to leave from here today more confused than when we came. We're going to leave out from this passage more confused about the things of God and the purposes of God and the activities of God than we were before. But if we're careful, if we'll follow John's train of thought and let him lead us along the way, I think we'll leave here more convicted of our own sin and our own unbelief in the most positive sense of that word. We'll leave her with our hearts exposed before God so that he can do some healing and transformation in our lives. And we'll leave here very encouraged by the fact that God is in absolute control of what's happening in the world. I don't know about you, but I am unplugging more and more and more from media, from social media in particular, because it's just stressing me out. This world is going crazy. God doesn't feel like that at all. He's not stressed at all. He is in total control. And if we're careful with this train of thought, we're going to leave here very encouraged today. So I want to just encourage you in the quietness of your hearts right now to just pray and ask the Lord to help you. I, I am sure that you come into the room with other things on your mind. I'm sure that you have some of you heavy things on your heart. Some of you are just distracted. Some of you are, are just tired. I get it. I feel a little bit of all, all of that. 
But let's just pray and ask that God would help us. And Father, I do pray just once more, I just ask you that you'd help us now. Help us to pay attention, Lord. Help us to be awake. Help us to come fully into the world that is yours. Help us to leave the things of this earth behind that you might teach us. And Father, we thank you for what you will do. Some 1,400 years before Jesus walked the earth, Moses said this to Israel. This comes from Deuteronomy 29. You, Israel, have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt. He's talking about all the miracles that happened before they left to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. The great trials your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. In other words, Moses is rebuking the people and saying, you have seen the power and the glory of God with your eyes and yet you have not believed. You have seen the mighty acts of God and rather than softening yourself before God, you have hardened your hearts before him. The hardness of the hearts of the Jewish people existed way before Jesus began to walk the earth, but by, by his time it had sort of come to a crescendo. Rather than getting better and better, it seems that it was getting worse and worse because when the one greater than Moses came, here's what John said in verse 37, though he, Jesus, had also done so many signs before them right in front of their face, they still did not believe in him. They had eyes, but they did not see. They had ears, but they did not hear. They had hearts, but they did not feel. And so this raises a few questions for us that we have to answer. First of all, if you look in verse 37, John talks about them and they, and I wanna make sure we're clear about who them and they are. Number two, the question, next question is what signs is John talking about exactly? And then number three, why did so many of the Jews not believe in Jesus? So who are they, who are we talking about, what are the signs, and why did they not believe? First, with regard to the identity of who John is talking about, there were actually five groups of people present by this time in the story. And this is where my handy dandy little chart would have helped you so much to just keep all this in, in line. But let me just try to describe it to you. It's not that hard to follow. Five groups of people that are present in Jerusalem at this moment. First of all, there are his disciples that have been walking with him for years of time. They're devoted to him, they have been following him, they followed him right into the heart of Jerusalem. They were there for the triumphal entry. They've been listening to everything he said in chapter 12. Second of all, there was a group of Jews from the town of Bethany where Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. They gathered around him there. Many of them actually saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. Others of them came to Bethany after he had done this because they heard about it and they, they just wanted to draw near to this one. And so there was a large crowd of people that gathered at Bethany and when they made that three mile journey east of the Mount of Olives, over the Mount of Olives and into Jerusalem, this group of Jews went with Jesus, praising him all along the way, literally out loud praising him along the way. Third, there was the group of Jews that were in Jerusalem. Some of them lived there, others of them had traveled there for the Passover. They too had heard about what Jesus did with Lazarus and so they went out from the city to meet Jesus on the western slopes of the Mount of Olives. They joined in praising his name and they welcomed him into the city as their king. You may remember that from a couple of weeks ago. They saw him as the fulfillment of Psalm 118 verses 25 and 26. Then number four, there were the Jewish leaders who were not all opposed to him but by and large they were opposed to him and more significantly, 
The most powerful among the Jewish leaders were absolutely opposed to him, including the high priest, and they had given the word, get him, kill him. And they told everybody who lived in Jerusalem, about 100,000 people who actually lived in the city, if you see him, report him to us so that we can arrest him and put him to death. And then number five, you may remember from last week, there was one more group of people. These were God-fearing Gentiles. John calls them Greeks here in this passage, but in this case, the word Greeks is referring to Gentiles. We don't know how many of them there were. We don't know exactly where they came from. We just know that these outsiders from the people of Israel had heard about Jesus. They had a heart for Jesus. They wanted to know Jesus. They were there seeking Jesus, and when he heard that they were there, the sign uh, dawned upon his mind, and he said, now, now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. So there are five groups of people literally standing right in front of him, intermixed with each other, be, it, be that as it may. There's five distinct group of peoples there. So who's John talking about when he says that Jesus did all these signs in their sight and yet they did not believe? Well, he's certainly not talking about the disciples because except for Judas, they believed in him and they were faithful to him by the grace of God. If I can go to the other far side, he's almost certainly not talking about the Greeks, the Gentiles who had come to seek him because they were just curious about Jesus and it seems pretty clear from the text that they were leaning toward belief in Jesus and they probably had not seen any of his signs even if they had heard about it with their ears. So this leaves us with these middle three groups of Jews, some from Bethany, some from Jerusalem and some from among the religious leaders. And while it may be tempting for us to put all the weight of this statement on the religious leaders, I don't think that's accurate. I think that a mixed among the Jews from Bethany, mixed among the Jews from Jerusalem, mixed among the Jewish leaders were a whole mess of people who were around Jesus, who were curious about Jesus, but who did not believe in Jesus. Some of them refused to believe in Jesus and were actually out to get him. So again, we're talking about thousands and thousands of Jewish people. A smaller percentage of them believe there's a larger group that did not believe. I think that it's them that John is talking about. When John says, though he had done so many signs before them and they still did not believe, he's talking about, again, a, a mix of Jewish people who had been personally, visibly exposed to Jesus and yet would not bow their hearts before him. And so with that, what signs is John referring to? Well, you may remember from our study of John that he highlights seven major signs in his book. He acknowledges several times that Jesus did many more signs than this, but he writes about seven major signs. Then he tells us about three specific signs that happened right in Jerusalem or near Jerusalem and had a great impact on this tension between the Pharisees and the religious leaders and Jesus. I'm thinking about chapter five when he healed the paralytic man, you remember that? And the guy picked up his mat and walked and, and because he was walking with his mat, the religious leaders got all over his case and became very upset at Jesus. This man was a, a recipient of grace and yet he became a recipient of the wrath of man because of that. Then I'm thinking of chapter nine when Jesus healed the man that was born blind. Again, a, a stunning miracle of God done right in the sight of the people and yet those who had physical ability to see, many of them, if not most of them, were blind to the spiritual realities of what Jesus had just done. And rather than humbling themselves before God, they became more and more angry at Jesus and de determined to put him to death. And then the pinnacle of his signs, the raising of a man from the dead, 
He stood in the front of the tomb of Lazarus after being in that tomb for four days and called him out and he actually came out and many people saw it with their eyes and testified to what Jesus had done so that many, many more Jews were coming to faith in Jesus but rather than humbling themselves, the religious leaders used that story to make their final determination that now is the time to get this guy before this movement spreads and spreads. It's stunning, beloved. More grace, more revelation, more glory, more wisdom being given to them. And all that's happening is they're getting harder and harder. They're getting more and more angry. They're getting more and more determined to, be, uh, to come against Jesus. So I don't know exactly what John means when he says Jesus had done so many signs, but this much I know. He had given them every opportunity to believe. He had given them more than ample opportunity to believe. And besides the, the physical signs that he'd done, all they needed to do is really see the sun rising and setting and the moon rising and setting every day and just see all of nature laid out before them. That should have been enough for them to understand that God was and that God was in fact in their midst. But beloved, they were blind. They were absolutely blind. No matter what Jesus did, they, not only would they not believe, but they kept upping the ante to their opposition to the Lord of life the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come to the big question of this text. Why? Why is this happening? How do we understand a God who is sending his only begotten son for the, for the pouring out of grace upon the earth only to find such hardness of heart among his own people? Well, John answers by teaching us that their failure to believe, their refusal to believe was not about the failure of Jesus' ministry, it was a fulfillment of prophecy. Please mark that. The failure of Jesus, if I could use these kind of terms to grow his movement among these kind of people, was not about the failure of his leadership or of his movement. It was a fulfillment of prophecy. John quotes two significant texts to show us how this is so. He starts with Isaiah 53, verse one. John writes, so that, these things were so that the word spoken by the prophet of Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Please turn back with me to Isaiah 53. I wanna think carefully with you about what's happening here because I think we'll gain a lot of insight if we'll slow down and let John lead us in the way that we should go, if we'll let him teach us. This Section of Isaiah really starts in chapter 52, verse 13. So I'm gonna start reading there and I'll pause just a little bit when we get to 53, one. Isaiah, moved by the Holy Spirit, writes as though he is speaking in the voice of God. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, His appearance was marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. So to this point, the end of chapter 52, Isaiah is prophesying the death and the resurrection of Jesus and he is prophesying the proclamation of the gospel among the nations of the world, and he's saying they're gonna listen. He's not saying every single person will listen, 
But he is saying that when the nations hear the gospel, like us in this room, non-Jews in this room, they're gonna hear the gospel and believe. Now this leads Isaiah to the question in verse uh, chapter 53, verse one. He's now talking about the Jews. That's the news for the nations. What about the Jews? And here's Isaiah's exasperated question. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Who has heard this prophecy that you've given to me and who's bowed down and worshiped the Lord or to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who, who has seen the purposes and the power of God in Jesus Christ? And for them, I see the rest of Isaiah 53 in a way as Isaiah describing what it was like for Jesus to grow up and what actually happened to him. So instead of being received, here's what Jesus' life was like. For he grew up before him, which means before Israel, right in their sight, like a young plant and like a root out of the ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He did all this for us and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him is, was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid in our iniquity, of, laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. In other words, the people saw him as a criminal and not as a substitutionary savior. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet, 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 it was not just the will of man. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, the Lord, has put him, Jesus, to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring he shall prolong his days, he shall be resurrected. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteousness. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore they will divide with him the portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. Beloved, this has got to be one of the most, if not the most, glorious revelations of the beauty and purposes of God in the days of Jesus Christ, 700 years before he walked this earth, and yet when Isaiah preached it to his people, nobody believed him. They did not hear 
They heard the words of the prophet sent to God and they did not hear. They saw him with their eyes and they did not see the glory of God. They heard what ought to have impassioned their hearts and yet they remained hard. And so Isaiah cries out to the Lord and says, Lord, who has believed, who will believe, who has seen the power and the purposes of God in Christ? But beloved, if Isaiah was simply expressing his bewilderment John pushes this even farther, and you don't have to turn back there quite yet because we'll just be there for a millisecond. But in verse 39, John actually says, therefore, therefore, the people that were hard before Jesus could not believe. Now, in the Greek, the way that literally reads is, therefore, they could not believe. It reads exactly like that. These people did not believe in Jesus because they were unable to believe in Jesus. Oh, what a powerful statement that is. What a strong statement that is. What a God we must grapple with and understand in light of that. Turn to Isaiah chapter six with me because now to support that, John paraphrases chapter six, verse 10. And he says, in the words of Isaiah, for again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. In other words, Beloved, we have to grapple with something here today that's hard to grapple with. The people in Jesus' day were blind because God caused them to be blind. The people in Jesus' day were deaf toward Christ because God caused them to be deaf. The people in Jesus' day were hard toward him and would not understand the gospel because God caused them to be hard so that they would not turn and be healed. Wow, what a God we have to grapple with here, beloved. What a God we have to understand. So let me begin at the beginning of Isaiah 6 and just walk you through this and hopefully I'll help us to see what's happening in John's mind with regard to the people in Jesus' day. In the the year that King Uzziah died, God graciously granted a vision of his glory to a young man named Isaiah. I don't know where Isaiah was, I don't know what he was doing, but I believe his report that God gave him eyes to see his glory and he saw God high and lifted up and he saw God dressed in royal regalia. Surely his breath was taken away and then he looked and saw a seraphim, a kind of angel, attending to the Lord and he saw the angel singing to God in a loud voice, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And as the angel sang, Isaiah saw the foundations of the house of God trembling at their voice and he saw the house of God filled with the smoke of the glory of God, the same kind of smoke that filled the temple and the tabernacle that that landed upon Mount Sinai. God gave Isaiah a sight of the actual glory of God. Isaiah was struck to the heart, beloved. He was absolutely pierced to the depths of his soul and he fell flat on his face before God and said, woe is me, I'm history, I am a dead man. I do not have any worth in me to be in the presence of such a great God. My lips are unclean, my people are unclean and so are their lips. But in his grace, God commanded an angel to take a a coal from the altar of God fly to Isaiah, touch his lips, and the word is given that your sins are now atoned for. Now that altar implies sacrifice. So what's, in, what's atoning for Isaiah's sin is the blood of sacrifice and the fire of the holiness of the presence of God. Through blood that removes his sin and through 
holiness that cleanses him, Isaiah, was not only forgiven but now prepared. And so the Lord lifted up his voice and said in verse 8, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah simply answered, Here I am, send me. And so without delay, the Lord gave him an assignment that stunned his soul. Would not have been what any of us expected. Here's what God said. Go, Isaiah, go. And say to this people, keep on hearing, go ahead, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Isaiah, make the heart of this people dull. God is not just saying this is what's going to happen when you preach. He's saying here is your ministry. Go make them dull. Make their ears heavy. Make their eyes blind lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now, that's disturbing, isn't it? Wouldn't you be stunned by that? Wouldn't you be thinking, I don't understand, Father. You're a great God of persevering love and grace, so how is it that you can send me on such a task? Isaiah says, and you'll see it in verse 11, how long, O Lord? I think what he's asking is, how long will this stubbornness remain? How long will this whole thing endure? And God basically says in verses 11 through 13, this is gonna endure as long as my wrath against my people endure. My wrath against my people will come to an end when they are like a terebinth tree or a massive mighty oak tree that is felled so that it's dead and all that's left is the stump. Now beloved, that word from God to Isaiah to the people was harsh, but I wanna tell you that it did not come out of nowhere. This is where you just gotta ask God for help to come into his world, ask God for help to see as he sees, okay? God called Isaiah in the eighth century B.C., Some seven centuries before that time, the people of Israel became a formal nation underneath the law of Moses. Sure, they existed as a a family before that, but under Moses they became a people. Almost three times as long as the United States has existed, Israel was already in existence by the time of the book of Isaiah, by the time of the, the ministry of Isaiah. And all that time, Israel had in their possession the purposes of God, the promises of God, the law of God, the covenant of God, the priesthood of God, the tabernacle, and then the temple of God. They had the holy place and the most holy place. They had the Ark of the Covenant where the great sacrifices for sin were made and where God visibly manifested his glory in their midst by his grace. They had all this in their grasp, beloved, all of it in their grasp. Of all the peoples on the face of the planet, Israel should have known the Lord and walked humbly and happily with the Lord. And yet, most of them, not all of them, most of them persisted in rebellion. Just think of what you know about Israel in the days of Moses and then in the days of Joshua and then in the days of the judges. Remember that book? Utter chaos among the people of Israel. And then think about the ministry of Samuel and the ministry of the, the, the kingship of Saul and the kingship of David and all the kings from David up to the days of King Uzziah when Isaiah was called into ministry. Beloved, by the time God called Isaiah and gave him this word, his people had been living in rebellion against him for seven centuries. Seven centuries. Seven centuries. And though God had graciously lavished his love upon his people, there does come a time when mercy gives way to wrath. There does come a time, beloved, when his people choose against him and choose against him and choose against him. And so God finally says, no more. 
no more. Now I will cut off your ability to choose. You have failed to believe in me and now I will make it impossible for you to believe in me. I will cause you to reap what you have sown. They refused to bow themselves before God and so God cut them off from him. As harsh and as final as that judgment may seem, even though it's perfectly righteous and just, I want you to notice what's there at the end of verse 13. Look at Isaiah 6, 13. What do you see? In the ESV, you'll see these words. The holy seed is its stump. Now what that means is that embedded in the devastated remains of Israel is a hope that cannot be suppressed and that will never be suppressed. That word seed is referring to Christ. Paul tells us that that word seed is connected to the promises of Abraham, that, that through the offspring, through the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Paul says that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Unless you think I'm reading too much into chapter six, verse 13 here, I wanna encourage you later, because we don't have the time to do it right now, to look at Isaiah 11. You could at least flip there real quick. And you'll see in the first couple of verses that God prophesies that a shoot will come out of what? A shoot will come out of the stump of Jesse, out of the remnants of Israel. A shoot will come, and that shoot is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I want us to see, beloved, I want us to see that even though the Jews had hardened themselves so much, so much, that God finally cut them off, he was still, still speaking a word of hope to them. From the days of Isaiah to the days of Christ, the Jews had opportunity to see these things in the book of Isaiah and believe, and they refused. Another 800 years, actually 700 years, they refused to believe so that when they saw not just the prophecy but the fulfillment, not just the word about Jesus, but they actually saw Jesus. Have you ever stopped to think they heard what his voice sounded like? They saw what his hands looked like. They saw him. And rather than humbling themselves before him, they plotted to take his life, beloved. They encountered Christ, but they felt nothing. They saw him, but they did not see. They heard him, but they did not hear because prophecy was being fulfilled. And while some would shake their fist at God and say, what kind of God are you to deal with people this way? I think God would answer back to us and say, who are you, O man, or who are you, O woman, to talk back to God? Which one of you are as patient as the Lord? Tell me, which one of you has a child in rebellion that you would wait seven centuries for them to repent before you finally cut the way to your family off from them? Which one of you is so wise and good and just and right as the Lord? Which one of you is like God? Beloved, the place for us in a moment like this is just to bow before God. To bow before God and understand that he knows what he's doing and he decrees only what's right and always what's right. The wrath of God against human beings is severe and it will be severe forever. And it's something that we don't want to know about, really. We want to know about it theologically so that we're warned, but trust me, we do not want to be under the wrath of God. We do not want that. And yet I want us to see that somehow in his wrath against his people is embedded the deep, powerful, eternal mercy of God. And here's what I mean. He allowed the Jews to get so hard that they plotted to kill Jesus and they actually killed Jesus. Imagine this. Imagine if some pastor came to this church and you really didn't like him. Okay then, but would you kill him? Really? 
They killed him, beloved. They took his earthly life. And yet in their hardness, murderous hearts, the sacrifice for the sins of the nation was being made. Mercy in the midst of wrath. Mercy in the midst of God's judgment against the Jews. And not only that, but through the hardness of the heart of the Jewish people, the gospel spread to the nations of the world. I want to ask you to turn with me to one more place today, Romans chapter 11. So out of the Old Testament, right past John into Romans. I want to just look with you at the end of Romans 11 because Paul gives us helpful insight as to why God is allowing things to happen this way. In this chapter, Paul teaches us that the hardened hearts of the people of Israel, or that God had hardened the hearts of the people of Israel so that through their sin, the gospel would spread to the nations of the world. And when this happened, Paul said it would cause the Jews to be jealous and encourage them to come back to God through Jesus Christ. And so in verse 15, Paul asks if their rejection, if the Jews' rejection means the reconciliation of the world to God, then what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And then after warning us Gentiles not to become arrogant before God about the Jews, Paul concludes like this in verses 25 through 32. Lest you, Gentiles, be wise in your own sight. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, by which he means all spiritual Israel, all those who have always belonged to God. He's not just talking about people who are politically allied with the nation. He's talking about people who truly belong to God through the promise of Abraham. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins." As regards the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they, the Jews, are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gift and the calling of God to Abraham or through Abraham to Israel and then to the nations are irrevocable, irrevocable, irreversible. For just as you were at one time disobedience but now have received mercy because of their, the Jews' disobedience, So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you Gentiles, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all peoples to disobedience that he may have mercy on all peoples, Jews and Gentiles alike. We don't have time to press into details. I want to encourage you to meditate upon this passage because this passage is very helpful in helping us understand why God designed things the way he did. But I'm going to tell you straight out, Romans 9, 10, and 11 is not going to answer every question that we have about these things. When we get done studying and studying carefully and prayerfully and humbly, we're probably going to come out with more questions than we have answers. We just need to get our minds around the fact that God is greater than us. He's infinitely wiser than us. And there's just no way we're going to be able to wrap our minds around everything. But I do want to say that God has given us enough so that we can join Paul in his gushing words of praise at the end of chapter 11. Look what he says, starting in verse 33. Oh God, in light of all these things, oh the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are your judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been a counselor to the Lord? 
Or who has given to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. We're never going to know enough to have all of our questions answered. But beloved, we can know enough to join Paul in praise. We can know enough to know that God knows what he's doing when he softens some people's hearts and hardens other people's hearts. One of the things I wanted us to understand today is that God only hardened the hearts of people who had earned that kind of hardening. Now, of course, all of us have earned this kind of hardening. God chooses to be gracious to some, and why he chooses to be gracious to those and not to others, I'm gonna have to leave that to him. It's his choice. But what I see from John's teaching, from Isaiah's teaching, from Paul's teaching, is that I can trust God. I don't know why my brothers and sisters in my physical family have not responded to the preaching of the gospel and the demonstration of the grace of God that God has done through me in my family for 30 years. None of them have believed and I don't know why. I don't know why their hearts are still hard, but beloved, I trust the Lord. He softens whom he will soften. He hardens whom he will harden. Blessed be the name of God. Blessed be the name of God Almighty who does all things well. God is in absolute control of the proclamation of the gospel and the effects of the gospel in the world without one single exception. There's not a person that's outside of the purposes of God and I'm telling you, to me, there's still a lot of mystery involved there. But I pray that we'll leave encouraged today that God is in total, absolute control. Now turn back with me to John 12. We've got just another minute. I want to help wrap this up and land the plane, so to speak, here in this part of chapter 12. John says in verses 42 and 43, Nevertheless, lest you think that no Jews were believing, don't get that idea. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue because... They love the glory that comes from men more than the glory that comes from God. There are a number of responses to Jesus in the days of, to Jesus in the days of Jesus. And I'm not going to go through them all, but here John is highlighting this subset of people that had a kind of faith in him, and yet they stopped short of going public with their faith because they were afraid. Nicodemus is an example of this. Probably Joseph of Arimathea, at least at a time of his life, was an example of this. With regard to this group, John gives us important insight about them that isn't just about them, but about people that you and I maybe even know now. While it's true that they feared that the Jewish authorities would remove them from the synagogue and therefore from normal Jewish life, while it's true that they didn't want to lose their position and their power and all the the accoutrements, the comforts of being part of culture, the truth of the matter was that fear was not the main thing keeping from embracing, keeping them from embracing Christ. Do you see what John says the main thing was? The main thing was that they loved the glory of man more than they loved the glory of God. They wanted to be accepted by people more than they wanted to be accepted by God. They wanted the comforts of human culture more than they wanted the comforts of God's eternal kingdom. They wanted the safety of just going along with the crowd rather than risking everything to go along with God. And beloved, let me put it to you this way. In the end, You know what the fear of man is? In the end, the fear of man is the love of self. That's what it is. There are different shades of it, but all the time. The fear of man is the love of self. And the love of self is the death of faith. 
These people kind of believed, but they did not come into a fullness of belief because they loved earthly glory. They loved themselves more than they loved God. Jesus had said in chapter five, he said, how can you all believe when you receive glory from each other and don't seek the glory that comes from God? The love of self is the death of faith. Now we don't know the ultimate outcome of those people, but we do know that if they continued in this persistent unbelief, this persistent love of self and fear of men, that the day would come when God said no more. Just like he did with Pharaoh, just like he did with Esau, there is a point of no return and there would come a day when God said that's it, no more. And I preach these things to you in part to say don't distance your heart from this text because this could be you. We're not that different from the Jews. We're people that are in a Christian-ish culture, and especially in a church like this, we've heard so many things about the things of God for such a long period of time, and we are prone to the same inoculation against God that the Jews were. And if we persist in our unbelief, the time will come when God says, no more, the path to belief is cut off for you. I don't know where the point of no return is, And for my part, I will plead with God for any person as long as they're breathing on this earth. But I think biblically, it is plain that a person can be living on the earth and have gone beyond the point of no return. It's just we don't know where that is. God knows. I just want to say, don't play with that line. Don't play with the wrath of God, beloved. Listen to the heart of your Father in this text and humble yourself before him. Paul says, Back in Romans 11, he says, note then the kindness of God and notice the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. If you do not persevere, you will not be with him to the end. And you know that we believe in this church, that when a sheep belongs to Jesus, he belongs to Jesus forever. I'm not saying you can lose your salvation, but I am saying you can deceive yourself into thinking you have salvation when you don't. You can deceive yourself into thinking that you're submitted to God when you are not submitted to God. So behold the kindness of God, behold the severity of God. Now as I said at the beginning of the message, maybe it makes more sense now. If we're not careful here, we can leave confused, we can leave angry at God, we can leave in other bad ways. But if we're careful here, we can let the word of God pierce our hearts and open them up and expose any remaining unbelief that is there so that that can be lifted up to God and healed and transformed. And if we're careful with this text, we can leave from here being very comforted that God is in absolute control of those who are coming to him and those who are not coming to him. And while we may grieve at the hardness of people who are lost, we should not grieve before God. Like Pastor Kevin said so well, we don't grieve as people who don't have hope. And here's our hope, God is in control. God is in absolute control of salvation, and of condemnation. Let me pray that God will help us sort all these things out. Father, there's so much to keep on the table in this text and there's so much to keep in our minds. But I pray that you'll help each of us, Lord. I pray that we'll go away from this place not most eager to go watch a football game or to do whatever it is that we plan to do, but most eager to give those things up that we might think about the things of God. I pray, Father, that you would grip our hearts with these things. I pray that we would be taken with the eternal realities that we have seen. And I ask you to use your word and your Holy Spirit to humble us, Lord. I know that there are parts of my heart that are still so arrogant 
And I just wanna bow myself before you, Father. I wanna humble myself before you, so help me to do that, Father. And I pray that you would encourage us as we look at our families and our cities and our world and wonder why more people aren't coming to faith in Christ. I pray that you'd encourage us that you are in total control. And I pray that we would join Paul in the worship of you. Thank you, Father, for what you will do in Jesus' name.